We'll be continuing through Zechariah, that uh, minor prophet that uh, you can turn to. will be in chapter 2. If you go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and back up one book, that's where you'll find Zechariah. And all the minor prophets get a little mixed up sometimes, but uh, that is where you'll find it. And just to refresh on uh, where we are in redemptive history, it's helpful to think about where What's going on in this time? And this is where God's people have been unfaithful over and over and over again with bad kings. And finally, God, God sees that his people are desiring others, other gods besides him. And so he lets them go and they're carried off into exile in Babylon. And now, after 70 plus years, they've come back. Some of them have come back. And... Zechariah is prophesying into a, a time of about 20 years, having been the first uh, returnees have come back, and they're trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And there's a foundation for the temple, and that's about it. And you can imagine some of the questions in their mind then, 20 years in, wondering, is this worth it? Like, it's been 20 years, not a lot's happened. Like, what's, is God going to continue with us? Maybe even wondering, who, who are we? They probably forgot what it was like to be God's people. Maybe what it was like to be in God's presence. Their temple was destroyed. Questions like that probably were going through their minds. Maybe wondering, are we too far gone? Is God done with us? Will the Lord be with us again? Well, this passage in Zechariah chapter 2, it's the, it's the second, uh, I'm sorry, the third vision that he receives at night. Uh, If you remember, the first one was uh, portraying God's jealous love for his people. And then the second one we heard last week was God's justice for his people. And this week, it is a vision that highlights, portrays God's presence with his people, his promised presence. So let's go to Zechariah chapter 2. We'll look at all 13 verses. This is God's word. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent 
all flesh before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to lead us through his word this morning. Father, we do ask that you would guide us, Lord, that your word would have its way in our hearts, that we would be transformed more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We ask for your glory. Amen. Uh, Some of you know that this year of 2020, um, it's been an interesting year, Um, but it happens to be also a year that I've spent in a, a cohort of other pastors uh, that are growing in their uh, learning of evangelism. And it's a cohort of guys all over the country. And we've been doing that. And the guy that leads the cohort, he's in D.C. Uh, his name's Al Dayhoff. And he, uh, a lot of what he is doing, it's not so much a method of evangelism. He's teaching us how to listen <laughs> to other people. Uh, but also, one thing that maybe at first for me was surprising, but I'm starting to understand it. He said, sometimes just try to be still and just breathe. I'm like, what? Just breathe? What? Like, sit down and breathe. Like, I don't know how, you maybe, I don't know if you've tried that lately, but that's pretty hard to just sit down and be still <laughs> and breathe. And the point is that he says, learn how to be in the presence of the Lord. Because as, as you learn how to do that, you're more able to be in the presence of another person. And to hear them, to hear their story, to engage with the gospel. And so we're learning how to do that. A bunch of pastors that probably like to talk more than listen, probably. Uh, one of the guys in the cohort, a friend of mine, he's in Louisiana. He had an opportunity to be still. Uh, he had a heart attack about a month ago, a minor heart attack. He's okay. Had to have a couple stents put in, though. And so he was in the hospital in May during quarantine. His family couldn't see him, anything like that. And so he had time to be still (laughs) and breathe. And I want to just, these are his words. This was something he wrote just on reflection of that time. I'll just read, I'll read his words. He said, the last few mornings I have paused simply to feel my heart beating and the air in my lungs flowing. I often do this especially after a morning run while I'm stretching. But now I do so with profoundly new mindfulness. This past week, as I write this, I suffered an unexpected heart attack and had two stents placed in me. I'm age 43, fairly active, family of five, and not prone to illnesses, so this has been quite a shock. At any given moment, I'm inundated with the noise of my plans and my pains, the noise of my dreams yet fulfilled, the noise of my sins, and the noise of my failures and anxieties. And yet, God sees me and breathes upon me and is pleased for me to breathe and to be known by my Heavenly Father. In that moment of breathing and beating, all the noisy accusations and distractions of the world and my own soul are hushed by God's own breath. He's pleased by my existence, by my beating heart, And by the way, he has created me and placed me. God wastes no breath. I bear his image. I live in his declared goodness. I have been placed into his world. It's interesting what happens when you slow down and try to be in the presence of the Lord. But perhaps you're like me. I often find it so hard. I get more caught up in self than I do in hearing from the Lord and being present with Him and being present with others. 
We live in a society that's enthralled with self. We are individually become enthralled with self. It's, it soaks into us. We struggle to see outside of us. It's hard to know how to listen to hear, but only listen to reply. We've forgotten how to be in the presence of another. And more importantly, how to be in the presence of the Lord. So in an age of self-focus that leads to distraction and discouragement, division and distance, all those D's, uh, we've lost our ability to be present with the Lord. But in His gentle care for His people, He continues to give us Himself and joins us to others. And this vision that Zechariah is given is also given to us. It's recorded for us, and we're going to work our way through this as we, uh, we're taught by God's Word how to recover our ability to experience the Lord's presence. And this passage sort of breaks down in three points, three ways that this vision uh, teaches us that. One is simply uh, recapturing our imagination for the Lord's presence. Too often we have a small, uh, muted, uh, or misguided view of what it is to be with the Lord. And so this opens that up, it blows it up for us to capture, recover our vision of the Lord's presence. And secondly, to seek the Lord's presence. It's a call to seek, to recapture that journey of pursuing the Lord's presence. And then finally, to rejoice in the Lord's presence, to recover delight in Him. It's in our vision statement. We delight in Him. So that's where we're going. We'll go with me. Uh, so that first point then, this idea of reimagining, re- recapturing our imagination, our vision of the Lord's presence. How, how does this passage do that? Well, those first five verses uh, really get at that. And we see Zechariah has been hanging out here. It's been at night, and he's had a couple of visions already, and his, his head's probably spinning a little bit, like, what is, what is going on here? And then this third one comes, and he sees this man coming along with a measuring line. It's like a picture of like an old uh, ancient tape measure. And he says, uh, and Zechariah's like, wait, okay, there's probably something going on here. I'm seeing these visions. What is this one about? And so he says, where are you going? He says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem. You could maybe pick, maybe picture it. Put yourself in Zechariah's shoes or anybody's shoes then. You're looking out over a city at night that's mostly uh, under construction, but mostly unbuilt. There's the foundation of the temple, and the walls are not built. The city's just still kind of in ruin, and it's probably a little bit of a depressing view. And so Zechariah is probably thinking, well, there's not much to measure, but go right ahead. <laughs> um, but maybe, maybe Zechariah is thinking, okay, these are visions. I'm learning things here. God is, is teaching me through these visions. What, maybe there's something more to this. Maybe he's going to measure what will be. And so maybe he's dreaming of the good old days. You know, he was, it says here he was a young man. He was probably a young prophet. But maybe his parents or his grandparents had told him stories about the, the day of Solomon's temple and the city in that day that was beautiful. And the temp, temple was there and it was amazing. And so maybe he's thinking, yeah, well, uh, maybe this means that we're going to get back to the good old days when the temple was there and everything was great. And we had walls up on the city and we were safe. But then something, then the, the message that comes back to him is different. 
And so these two angels, the angel that was with Zacharias sort of interpreting these visions goes out and another angel comes, I think, and they meet that guy with the measuring line and then they confer and they say, send this message back to that guy, that Zachariah guy over there. Tell him this. We see in verse 4 to 5 that message. It says to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. it. You could even be more literally translated as open countryside. Jerusalem will, Jerusalem will be not so much a city anymore, but open countryside, spread out, villages, people, spread out. It's in some ways a picture of what will be when Jerusalem is spread out over the world. It's a city that's not a city anymore. It's a city that is a people more than it is a fortified geographical place. And so it's something categorically different than uh, what Zechariah may be even dreaming of, of the good old days. Again, that's speculation. We don't know if that's what he's thinking, but you could imagine that maybe some of the people, some of the, uh, the older generations of the people that returned remembered the old days. And they're wondering, well, is it going to be rebuilt like that? And this vision says, it's so much bigger than you could imagine. And notice there's no temple mentioned in that. It doesn't say, oh, this is going to be a city without walls and the temple will be here. There's no temple. Because we know what the temple was, right? That was the place of God's dwelling for a time in history that was meant to point to Christ. But at that time, God's presence dwelled in the holy of holies, inside of a building, inside of a temple, inside of city walls, and was mediated through the priesthood. And so Zechariah is like, where's the temple going to be? And then it says this, the, the, this vision, the message from the Lord. It says, I will be to her a wall of fire around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. And then it goes on that later, it says, I will dwell with my people. It seems to be that God's presence then is among all the people. In this new city that's not a city but is a sprawled out countryside of people. And it sounds like God's presence will be with his people. Now we hear that and maybe we're not surprised. But put yourself in Zechariah's shoes. A priest who was the mediator for God's presence. To think, wait, no priest? Don't need a priest? No, no temple? The Lord's presence will just be with everybody. It would have been surprising, shocking. Categorically different than what they had known before. So not so much the good old days, but something much, much greater. How, how is your vision of God's presence? What is it that you perhaps are imagining, if we could use that word? What are you thinking about when you think about the Lord's presence? Is there maybe some nostalgic memory? Again, we've Probably most of us have had those. A time in our lives where uh, the Lord was very active in our lives and we're longing for maybe that to come back or some time in the past, some experience, maybe some person in our lives. And again, not bad things, but maybe too small of a thing. Because we're looking back to something that is not the Lord maybe, but was pointing us to the Lord. And the Lord is saying, it's so much greater. And what you can imagine. So how is our vision? I, uh, 
I'm remodeling one of our bathrooms right now. That's been fun. And my wife has the gift and ability to see it for what it will be. I don't really have that. I kind of see the old bathroom and I think, well, this works. Yeah, the popcorn ceiling's falling down a little bit and the tiles are a little scratched up and the, you see the old pink tile coming through the paint and all that, but, but it works. And when I hear renovation, I hear ooh, work and money and all that. But she says, no, this, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to be. It's great. It's awesome. I'm like, okay, let's go. But now we're at the point with this bathroom where I actually see it. <laughs> she has the ability to see and imagine what, what it could be, what it will be. And I think the Lord's word, God's word, invites us to continually go back to that, to imagine what the Lord's presence will be, and in a sense, what it already is. There's an already and a not yet to this. We already have the Lord's presence indwelling us with His Spirit. So how is our imagination, how is our vision of the Lord, what is our metric for measuring the church, the people of God? Do we use a human yardstick? Do we use a human measuring line? Or is it something greater? We find ourselves in a a time of what feels like sea change in this world. 2020. It's going to be like a saying. (laughs) But what is God doing? I think that's the question. What is God doing? What are we learning? What does He want His people to do and to be? How is He shaking us out of our comforts? Is it a pandemic, racial tension, and political division? All these things, is it, what is it doing? Is it shaking us out of our comforts? It's showing things to us that maybe is too small of a view of what God, who God is and what He's doing. Sometimes we've just lost the art of listening, hearing from the Lord. Because, again, if you're like me, we can get hyper-self-focused. And we get inward, and we get myopic, and we forget to see the big picture of what is God doing. So as he opens our eyes again to the bigger picture vision of who he is, his presence, what he's doing in and through us, the next step then, which is the next point here printed for you, is this seeking the presence of the Lord. Seeing it clearly and then seeking it. That is the response to seeing it clearly. As he opens our eyes, the response is what we see in verses 6 and 7. Up! Flee from the land of the north. Verse 7, up, escape to Zion. Now, he's talking about leaving Babylon here. You see that word, the name of that city, Babylon. If you looked at the, uh, the original translation there, it actually says Babel. Now, that may ring a bell. Uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. If you remember that story, that was where all the people of the world were together they had the same language. And they came together and said, hey, let's, we can do this on our own. Who needs God? We can build this tower. We can make a name for ourselves, is actually what they say. And God says, this is not good, because it will lead to destruction, because they were made for me. And it was the opposite of what God said in creation mandate, to go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, spread out, take my glory, bear my image throughout the world. And humanity cloistered up, said, no, we're going to be secure and safe, and we're going to make a name for ourselves. We can do this on our own. And 
It's actually the same lie that Adam and Eve believed in the beginning, isn't it? They ate the fruit and said, oh, maybe God's holding out on us. Uh, We could figure this out better on our own. So we'll go do that. And it's the same lie that we are born with that's in us, that we believe. That now Christ is doing away with in us. But it still rises up in us sometimes. It's that kingdom of self. And that is what Babylon or Babel represents. It was an actual city, a place. But God used that actual place to say that ultimately is the kingdom of self. That is life without me. And so he says, escape it. Run from it. Uh, A lot of times we think about sin as maybe a list of do's and don'ts, right? It's like, right, be sure you do these things and be sure you don't do these things. And certainly God's word spells out an awful lot of things like that. But those are all outworkings or symptoms of the core of what sin is. And I think I've come to believe that sin at its core is our attempt to replace God with ourselves, to be God. And that works its way out in all kinds of ways. And so it is, again, building this kingdom of self. And that is where God calls us out. He calls God's people out. He says, flee, get out of that. Get out of the clutches of self. That may be the, most, the, the, the place where we can most easily get sucked into is ourselves. Now, why, did, why does God wait sometimes? Why did, why did God's people have to wait for a long time in Egypt before the Exodus? Why did they have to wait for 70 years in Babylon? Why does, it, why does God do this sort of waiting time? I don't fully know the answer to that because he's God and I'm not. But I kind of think sometimes, I see in my own life, he gives us a time of letting us see what, uh, what kingdom of self really is for all its destruction. He lets us go down that path for a little while to see it for what it is, to see it for its ugliness, so that he can then call us out of that. You see, God in his kindness, he's he's sovereign over everything that comes to pass. And he could just force us to love him, but he's so kind and gentle. He allows us to see what life is without him, and then... He does something even greater. He gives us a new heart that's able to love him, that delights in him, that has a relationship with him. And it's a true relationship. It's, uh, I can't fully explain how God works in all of that, but it's beautiful. And so he lets us see it. God, and God brings ruin on Babel. He's destroying ultimately the kingdom of self. In our lives, our self-sufficiency he says, escape that. He calls them out not to go and and gather up in another place, Jerusalem. They do that for a time. But the the whole purpose was that the people of God would be spread out in the world. He even says that. He says, Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens. It was always God's plan. He said, Through Abraham, I will bless the nations. So God calls us out of self. Now, my wife loves me enough to come to me and let me know when I've done something that was hurtful to her. She loves me enough to let me know, to come to me and tell me in love. And sometimes I don't handle that well. <laughs> sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just go inward with that and I think, oh, wow, that hurt. I don't like that. Ooh. 
And I make it more about me than about her. <laughs> Perhaps you can identify with that. There's times in a relationship that you have where you're like, oh, that's stung, but I need to hear you. And so it can, recall, it can cause us to retreat inward and sort of mull over those things in our mind and be sort of stuck in our thoughts and our frustration and even our fear in that. Fear of rejection, all those sorts of things. Now, the flip side of that can also happen where we can be the one who has been hurt by someone that we have a relationship with and rather than go to them in love, we retreat inward and we don't express it. We don't go to them. And so we end up becoming more, feeling more and more isolated in those times. Friends, brothers and sisters, have, have you heard God's calling out of Babel? out of the kingdom of self? Have you heard that? Have you heard his voice? Are you leaving the kingdom of self? Have you heard his voice and calling for the first time, that new heart transformation that allows us to actually hear his voice and respond? And then, of course, it's not a one-time thing when that happens after that, right? It's very much a journey, (laughs) It's a journey from Babylon to Zion, out of the kingdom of self, into the presence of the Lord, and it's a journey. So uh, I ask you, you, has God's word given you an ability to recapture the journey this morning? To, To take that step, to move forward? How How do you know? How can we know we are on that journey? How can I know that I've left Babylon or leaving or on that way? What are some things that we can ask of ourselves? Well, I came up with a few diagnostic questions from my own life. Maybe these will be helpful for you. How do you handle criticism? Do you see it as love or does it cause you to retreat inward? How do you handle authority? a tough one because really what we want to do is say I think I know what's best for my life rather than God or the people that he's put over me that's a tough one how do you handle your opinion again sort of the opposite of that well what I think is best and I know what's best for me and I know what's best for everybody else maybe and how all that plays out that that can be exposing in our hearts when we're in a disagreement with someone are we more interested in reconciliation or being right. Again, that can go outward or it can go inward depending on the response. Self-focus leads us to one place and it's isolation. Lack of presence. As we retreat, when we retreat into self, we retreat away from the Lord's presence or we attempt to anyway. So I want to reawaken the journey into the Lord's presence. A friend of mine says that he thinks maybe one of the, um, the mother of all questions that we see in Scripture, I, I don't know, there's lots of great questions in Scripture, but he says he thinks one of them is the question in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have fallen and they go hide, God says, where are you? Remember that? He goes into the garden. God knew where they were, right? He's God. It was for Adam and Eve to hear it. It's for us to hear it. Where, where are we? Where are you? Where am I? Am I in Babel? Am I in the kingdom of self? Or am am I pursuing the presence of the Lord? It's a journey. Which direction am I heading? Am I heading towards Babylon or am I heading towards Zion? And again, we all know that's not a 
just a straight line trajectory, is it? <laughs> but it's an continually reorienting our life, life of repentance and faith and turning back to the Lord. It's a journey. <laughs> and you can imagine that the actual journey, by the way, from Babylon to Jerusalem then, uh, it wasn't like a you know, walk down the street to the next town. It was uh, about a three to four month journey, by the way. So you can imagine that would have been an interesting road trip. <laughs> but how's the journey? And then, what, what's the, the next point then? Imagining the Lord's presence, having a greater vision of it, seeking it, pursuing it, recapturing the journey, and then rejoicing in the Lord's presence. Restoring delight. We see that, uh, that call in this passage in verse 10, actually. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. That's, God says, I will be present with you. Rejoice. He says it twice. I will dwell in your midst. And in between those two statements is the, what says in verse 11. And many nations shall join themselves, not to you, God's people, but what? Directly to the Lord. They will join themselves to the Lord in that day. And then the repeat, again, of I will dwell in your midst. There is this, again, the spreading out of the city of Jerusalem that's not a city anymore. It's not a geographical place. It's a people that's spread out over the world. And nations will be joined to that people. And the Lord will be present with them. How? How is God present with us now? What? So Jesus came. And we know what he did, right? He, came, he went to the temple. He said, tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they were like, what are you talking about? This took years to build. And they didn't see that he was referring to himself. He said, I am now the temple. I am now the presence of the Lord in this world. It's, not, it's no longer a building. It's no longer a place. It's me. Well, Jesus lived on earth. He died. He, was rose, he rose from the dead and he went to the right hand of the Father. He's present there now. So where's the presence of the Lord now? Well, he gave us his spirit, didn't he? To indwell us. And we now, and he even says that in Corinthians, we are the temple now of the Lord. We are his presence in this world, his people Jesus came to be the true temple, and he gave us a spirit. And it's the reversal of Babel. The Tower of Babel, remember, was this common language, everyone doing their own thing together apart from the Lord. And then it's reversed at Pentecost, where Peter's preaching to people from all over the place with different languages, and all of a sudden, they start understanding what he's saying, everybody, in their own language. And it was the spirit being poured out, and it was the people being united, not by geography, not by a common uh, building up of a temple to make a name for themselves, but to make a name for the Lord. And then we're spread out around the, around the world on the mission of God. He gave a spirit not to all those folks who had it all together. He gave a spirit to a ragtag bunch of sinners like me and all of us. At one time, the temple was not for anyone who was defiled. And all of a sudden, now, outcasts are brought into the very presence of the Lord. Outcasts like us. 
So again, what's the question of, go back to the question of what is an indication that we have left Babel, Babylon, kingdom of self? Do you have the presence of the Holy Spirit? Do you hear him? Are you in step with the Spirit? It's not something we can produce. It's something that the Lord gives when he gives us a new heart, regeneration, and his Spirit is, it comes into us and indwells us. Do you have joy? Do you desire worship of the Lord? Again, I, I ask myself those questions, and I see times where I do desire it when I don't, and I know that when I don't, it's a call and invitation to repent, not to turn more inward. Are we able to get outside of self? Do you find that you rejoice more than turn inward? Do you find that you're able to listen to the Holy Spirit and to others? The opposite of misery is joy, not happiness. Because that, that's fleeting. Joy in the midst of pain, sorrow, horror, things we see now in this very year of just craziness. And the opposite of self is the presence of the Lord. I want to go back to my friend's reflections for a moment as we close up. And my friend who had the heart attack, who was had this time of being alone in the hospital and reflecting on being in the presence of the Lord. And this is how he carries on his thought. It's now a week and a half since I got home. My heart beats. God has preserved me from likely death and has sent me back to know and fear my Savior Master, to love my family well, and to serve others with the gospel as a dying man to dying men. My heart beats to be spent on others and even to be sacrificed for the worthy vision of others gazing upon the beauty and glory of Christ with unveiled faces being transformed. This is to be a daily pursuit, to find myself in the way of the gospel, in the way of gospel love with others. Again, whether, my young, whether it's my youngest child, my transgendered friend, or the seeking family in my neighborhood, he has preserved me from death and I cannot be passive or silent. What does it look like for the church to embody the presence of the Lord to the world? Acts 17 is where Paul says, in him, in the Lord, we, in him we live and move and have our being. I find that I don't often slow down enough to actually realize that. If we can slow down enough to enjoy his presence, we'll be more able to be the healing presence of the Lord for others, other uh, harried, frantic, restless, hurting souls who are lost in self. We can hear them and hear their struggles, hear their pain, hear their being trapped in that kingdom of self and invite them out of it. Soaking in each moment with the Lord slows us down to soak in each opportunity with another person, to be present with them and to perhaps put flesh on the gospel for them. And it's baby steps. We, take, we learn with baby steps. And maybe that first baby step is, hi, my name is Michael. Or, hi, my name is Michael. Whatever. It's baby steps, but we inch our way out with the presence of the Lord. Whether the world knows it or not, it's longing for the presence of God. It may not even say it that way. But I hear it in people as I sit down doing these interviews that I've been doing. 
I hear it. And there's nothing about me that is able to hear that. It's the Spirit that's in me and in you. But the Lord, the, the world is longing for the presence of the Lord. And there's healing in the presence of the Lord. We've, we've had, we often have too many interactions through social media, behind devices, at a distance. and We've had to be at a distance for a while. But we've often had too many of those interactions and where we're not experiencing presence. Where we kind of get to a place where we hear our own voice more than anything else. Or we hear people that agree with us more than anything else. Instead of hearing from the Lord and hearing the voices of others. We need God's people to use all their God-given skills to analyze where it hurts the most for another. And to hold over that wound, the only medicine that will really heal the love of Christ made present through His people. As we see that, as we capture that greater vision of the Lord's presence, as we seek His presence continually on that journey and as we rejoice in it, I think we'll be left the way verse 13 concludes. We'll be in awe. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You give us Yourself through Your Spirit. And Lord, teach us, give us faith to be able to be still and present with You. Thank You that You continually pursue us even when we're not, doing, when we're not pursuing You. Father, uh, give us an ability to be Your presence in this world who so de- that so desperately needs it. Father, we ask these things for Your glory. Amen.